Sometimes the fun begins when the paved road ends. Chevy Silverado 2500 HD is made to work hard and play hard on the road or off. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com for details and experience life in HD. Seven twenty WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth in for Anna Davlantis today. Thanks so much for being with me. Always grateful to you to sh- for sharing part of your day with me. So lots to do on the program today. We're going to be it's Money Monday, right? So we're going to be checking in about some money issues on everybody's mind. We're going to be doing lots and lots of things, checking on a lot of news stories, following a lot of things. But right now we are joined by Dr. Delara Saeed of the Chicago Women's March. She was on the program Friday with Anna, and she's back today to talk a little bit about how everything went. Dr. Saeed, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having us, Amy. So um, you talked to Anna on Friday, uh, looking ahead to the Women's March. Of course, there was quite a bit of weather that was that was in the way, but it sounds like it still was uh, a pretty sizable crowd. Give me some highlights of how the march went from your perspective, if you would. Sure. I wanted to start with um, saying that this is a very important commemoration of uh, MLK Day. You know, we uh, one day hope to march in celebration of a dream accomplished, uh, but this weekend we were marching for work to be done, right? Um, so 2020 is critical. On Saturday morning, regardless of the storm we had on Friday, the work uh, that people had to do to get into town on Saturday, we had thousands and thousands of marchers. Um, Estimates are anywhere between 10,000 and 50,000 marchers across Chicagoland who came into Grand Park to march with us. And for you, how has the the march evolved uh, from when it first started a few years ago? How, what is the character, like, how would you characterize it now versus then? Mm -hmm. That's a really great question. Um, I think when we first began the march, uh, the you know, the weekend after inauguration, it was a reflexive outpouring of emotion. It was a, um, it was very emotional. And I think what we have evolved to is, of course, marches motivate. So it continues to be emotional. It continues to be important, but it also is now very intentional. For example, if I may, in this March this year, we had five blocks that we walk across the street, uh, the march across the city center, and each of the blocks was a focused issue for 2020, an opportunity for marchers to learn, to activate, and to motivate. The issues were census 2020 that is coming up April 1st this year and continuing for the spring. Gun violence prevention, something we've got to tackle now with the urgency of today. Uh, Climate justice, health issues for all communities and families, and of course, voting, which 2020 again will uh, have the primary on March 17th and then end on November 2nd with a very important, probably one of the most important general elections of our lifetime. So the march has gone from being emotional and important to being emotional, important, and now very intentionally purposeful. I think that's a very interesting approach to name these five big areas to consider 
five big areas of thought, because I think a lot of times at public demonstrations, you see that kind of that that mix of things anyway. You know, you, you will see a climate justice sign. You'll see health care issues. You'll see a lot of different signs carried by participants. So I think that's a really interesting approach to say, let's we know that's going to have like, let's name that. How did that mm-hmm. idea evolve? Mm-hmm. How did you come come to that? I think the uh, the coalition that we have, the March on Coalition, uh, the Women's March Board leads this coalition and facilitates it. It is made up of dozens of organizations that do all this different kind of work. And to be clear, Amy, every issue is a very important one. There are many issues that we have to connect with and, and address in our city and in our state and in our nation. But as the conversations evolve for what this march would look like, we realized there were some critical issues that we could highlight in 2020, and then the organizations that were doing that work would be the ones galvanizing volunteers and activism on each block. So as we turned the corner into climate justice on Adams and um, Michigan, what we saw was young people, people of all backgrounds, all ages, all demographics, talking, uh, chanting, um, holding up signs about climate justice, about taking care of our environment and our world. So it was about our families being taken care of, but all families being taken care of across the world. And so it, it really just became a lot of energy. And, you know, we had many elected officials that joined us from, of course, our own mayor, Lori Lightfoot, to our lieutenant governor, Juliana Stratton, uh, President Tony Pluckwinkle, and and um, City Clerk Anna Valencia, as well as City Treasurer Melissa Conyers Irvin, and many of them commented specifically on being able to go block from block and enjoying and appreciating the work being done by the organizations to highlight those blocks. So, um, really, you know, I think it was like I said, a purpose-filled march. Indeed. And so in the time that we have left, um, I understand that the Chicago Women's March is also planning an October, uh, kind of mid-October march, centering around encouraging voting. Tell me about that, if you would. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, if I may, I'm just going to take a second more to say there's two things we can do now between now and October. And first thing is, if you would text MARCH, M-A-R-C-H, to 91999. So text the word MARCH to 91999. You'll have a quick form you can fill out that tells us what are the issues you care about, and we will send you then information about those issues. So it's continuing. The idea of the gallery of issues continues. It also continues on our webpage, www.womensmarchchicago.org. You can go on the Galleries of Issues page and see all the organizations that work under each of those issue titles, and then click on them, go directly to their website, and be able to volunteer and continue your activism. We hope this continues for the rest of the year, because in October, date to be finalized, we will uh, will be focusing on marching to the polls. So in October will be our March to the Polls. It will come just as early voting begins, and it will be a rally. The weather will be, I'm sure, much different, much nicer, and give us an opportunity to actually hang out at Grant Park, learning about candidates, learning about the importance of voting, learning about making our civic voice heard, and actually activating it that day. So we will start at Grant Park. It will be a full rally 
uh, around these issues. You'll see tents and tables and all the information out there. And then when we step off the march in October, we will be marching to um, Federal Plaza and then on to the early voting site in the city to actually cast our ballot on that day. Wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much. October March. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the update. Dr. Dolores Said of the Women's March Chicago, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Amy, and thank you for all of those who came out to march with us and all of those who will be activated all throughout this critical year. Thanks so much. All right, have a good one. All right, we're going to take a little break. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth in for Anna Devlantis today, and I'm joined in studio right now by WGN's own Ryan Burrow here to talk about, well, this is a weird story to me because this is uh, Amazon. We, we talk a lot about payment options and how that goes and all the many ways one can accomplish that. But Amazon is looking to take that much further and move payment access to our hands. Yeah, because see, the deal is it's very difficult to reach into your wallet and to get a credit <laughs> so card out. It's it's very challenging. It burns up a lot of calories. So Amazon says, let's go ahead and make this easier. Because right now, what can you do? You can order things on Amazon by talking to your dot or your echo, right? You just say the words and it'll show up sure. whatever you want on your doorstep. I won't say the words because I don't want it to show up on it'll your doorstep. Off, yeah. Exactly. Um, but uh, Amazon's been tinkering around. They've been talking with Visa and MasterCard and some of these banks like Wells Fargo to find a way to have you pay for things by just waving your hand, just using the palm of your hand. All of that data will be included in the palm of your hand. And um, this would be for purchases at uh, places that you frequent, uh, gas stations, um, coffee stores, coffee shops, uh, restaurants, fast food restaurants, places like that, where you just want to scan your hand and go. Mm-hmm. And maybe you make it part of your regular routine. They want to get involved in that process. But then that means that Amazon has my handprint. Oh, oh what do you know? Oh, wait, that detail. Oh, that yeah. Thing. You know, there are a lot of interesting things about this. Uh, first of all, Amazon, why, why does Amazon, Amazon want to do this when you can buy your coffee through Amazon. You can do a lot of things. Well, they are trying to get into this retail market, right? They've been trying desperately to uh, make some headway on Walmart. Walmart's got the brick and mortar. They've got the online. Walmart wants to be online. Amazon wants to be brick and mortar. So it's these two worlds that are clashing. And Amazon is saying, basically, we want to uh, get involved in your purchases outside of Amazon, Right? That's that's what this is all about. Learning more about where you go to fill your car up with gas, where you go to get your coffee, where you go uh, to pick up groceries or do those little uh, errands that you run on the weekends. The purchases that you're making outside, they are now getting knowledge and acquiring knowledge of. So that's a big portion of why they want to do this. Not just for the convenience of, oh, cool, I, I wave my hand. I mean, that's kind of cool. Admittedly, it's a little bit cool, but also, yeah, like it's not that hard to pull out your wallet and just swipe yeah. a card. It's not, I mean, I still think like, oh, swiping the card, that's so easy. It's exactly. So nice. Well, now I you got to dip the card. Now you try to swipe and like, no, it's a dip one. You and know? then when the chip goes out, you have chip. to try it three times exactly. before it says swipe. When even if you go, I know the chip is going out, but I still have to, I know it's all right. Pain. Maybe it is a pain. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe they're onto something here. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think it does spark kind of a bigger conversation about biometric data and okay. kind of building data profiles on all of us, I think interesting. I had somebody on the air to talk about this uh, a few weeks ago when the clear kiosks launched in O'Hare. Yes. And I thought that was really interesting. They're doing that, those at baseball games now too, I yeah. think, at some stadiums. Yeah. I, very interesting. I mean, that's like scanning your eye. I mean, I played with one of the machines just to kind of see what what do you need? What do you ask? And it's, it will scan your eye. And that's like where it 
starts and then fingerprints and all that, which is interesting and convenient. And sure, no one else has my fingerprints or my eyeballs, but also then my eyeballs and fingerprints are being stored somewhere and who knows how that data is being used. So it's like a lot of ethical stuff connected to that. Absolutely. And have you done any of the Amazon Go stores yet where you don't actually go up to a cashier? We've got one right down here, I know. know. Here's what I did. I went in and I was like, I'm going to do this. This It's going to be cool. And then I felt like I was, even though I would not be stealing it, I felt like I might look like I was stealing it. So I just left. I just couldn't do it. Have you done it? No, I have not. I've not tried it. Uh, I just assume that if I messed it up, they'll send me a bill because they know exactly who I am and where I am at all at any given time. Right? It's like the red light cameras. Right. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) They'll get their money at some point. But there there are some issues with this. Uh, Number one, obviously, as a customer, if you go through with this, uh, you will be giving up more information to Amazon. Um, You know, not just your palm, which hopefully, you know, no one's trying to cut off people's palms sure, to sure. use it. Um, but, uh, you know, they'll, they'll know more about these these non-Amazon purchases. Credit card companies are a bit leery as well. Like, they want to collaborate. This might be the new thing. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, what's to say Amazon won't just take this and do it themselves sure. and then, you know, completely make Visa and MasterCard worthless at yeah. some point. Um, the other thing is, from the consumer uh, standpoint... Um, what will your palm indicate when you scan it? You'll have to associate your palm with some kind of card. Now, you may have multiple cards. You may have a business work expense card. You may have a Kohl's card. You may, you know what I mean? So oh, when you wave, point. how's it going to know which to card? To your debit to card your debit? or your, your Visa charge card or whatever. Credit card, yeah, absolutely. And, and then the other big aspect of this is from the retailer itself. Do you want to get involved with Amazon on this? Mm -hmm. Because Amazon right now uh, does not sell, I should say, Walmart does not sell Amazon gift cards. Target does not sell Amazon gift cards. You have to kind of go around and shop. I think CVS might and like GameStop might, but they are associating themselves with Amazon and a lot of retailers don't want to. So that might be part of this too. Do you really want to be associated? Do you want Amazon to drive a wedge between you and the customer by using this technology when and if it it becomes reality? That's so interesting. I mean, I think on a much smaller scale, um, just the way data and, and, and its value it, it like pops up, I think is really interesting. We were looking at this like with Open Table a few months ago, maybe, gosh, time flies. I feel like maybe it was already like six, six or seven months ago about how restaurants are like, okay, I can't not use Open Table to get reservations, sure. but I have no access to that data of who those customers are who are sitting here in my restaurant, spending their money in my establishment. I have no idea who they are. I can't market to them later. I can't send them a coupon or a thank you or anything like that. So that, I mean, I think data ownership is just going to continue to be such a big and interesting topic with lots of interesting kind of inroads to it and a lot of paths out and a lot of just a lot of ethical and philosophical questions that come up when you think about it. And we need to think as consumers, too, is it worth the risk by being a part of this new technology? I mean, we talk about we were joking, you know, you got to reach into your wallet, you got to pull out your debit card. Is that worth you know, some of these other things that may fall out, Amazon knowing that I go to the same speedway located at this location mm-hmm. or this Sitco station, or if I'm, if they know that I'm buying this product or this kind of coffee every time, uh, whereas that's something they didn't know. But on the other hand, too, I mean, they know so much about us anyways. We've opened our ups, yeah. ourselves up so much to Amazon and, and Google and, and everything else. And all Absolutely. Did you yeah. see a documentary called The Great Hack? No. 
Mm-hmm. It is really interesting. It's kind of it's it's using like through the filter of Cambridge Analytica, and I okay. like go watch it because I got I got questions and I want to talk to somebody <laughs> else about it. Because um, there's a couple of characters that are painted very sympathetically that I don't know are that sympathetic really, but it's an interesting idea and it raises these very questions of like, well, what what about our data? Because I think so often the conversation is okay, well the ads will be more targeted to me. So sure. what? Who cares? But in fact, there's so many more issues that, that come up, especially on social media sites of like, am I only being shown content to elicit a certain response from me or a certain set of beliefs or to get me to act a certain way? Then it becomes a very manipulative big thing. And it's sure fascinating and dangerous. Well, you know, I, I went with my son to the Cubs convention right over there this, this weekend. And they're always, you know, sign up for this. You can win a free game ticket or you could win a Javi Baez autograph and stuff like that. So it's like, why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you doing it? They're just going to take it and email me back. And on top of that, they're going to sell that information probably to other companies, you know, as well. So there's always that factor. Do I really want the Javi Baez autograph that bad to, you know, to to give up my information, have my spam box completely full? I know. And some people say, well, just have a, a special email just for that kind of stuff. So, you know, everything going in there is just marketing to you and trying to collect data. That's fine. But on some level, you can't really avoid it. I mean, you can like, okay, I'm not going to give up my handprint to pay for something. I'm not going to like take an ancestry DNA test. I'm not going to do those big things. But I mean, I think there's so much more data being compiled about us that we don't even realize, you know, just saying like on Facebook, just saying, I don't agree saying, you know, things like that. I think it's very hard to opt out of that completely. Well, and we, we get all weirded out about the government getting information about us, right? They even, I mean, the government knows when you go through the toll, you know, I mean, or yeah. what I should say the iPass company knows of when you went through the toll and, and, and things like that. But you know, we openly give it to Facebook and Google and we don't even think twice about we it. We don't so. think, we, we give, I mean, people that, that, that like vague book, you know what I mean? That like post yeah. very emotional things on there, but you're not real clear what triggered them to say that kind of thing. Even that kind of thing is expressing data points that's really interesting. I don't know. I, I smell a coming revolution with data because it's so valuable and it's so interesting and it sparks so many, I mean, really big philosophical questions about ethics around it and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I think I think more is coming. But do you want to be stuck in a cave with no Wi-Fi? I mean, not really. Some days, honestly, <laughs> yes. Some days I totally do. Some just days I'm like, you know what? A cave would be fine. Put you in a canoe and just push you out into, into Lake Goose. Michigan. Off she goes. There <laughs> she is doing her thing, going off. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it makes a lot of, um, we, we all, we, tr- we're often very eager to trade convenience for huge swaths of information. Well, and you know, part of the pulling out and then this was the the check writing thing. You had to write out the check, you know, for how much it was and that would take time and it would let you think about your purchase a little bit more. That's true. Now you've got to pull out your card and and it's a lot easier, but think about just waving your hand. I mean, you don't have to think about those purchases anymore, do you? Also, but here for like, budgeting. <laughs> that's true, right? Yeah. The, the germaphobe in me is like everybody's hand has been on that side. Uh, Ugh. <laughs> Gross. It's true. Mandatory hand sanitizer first before we scan the palm people because ugh, ugh, gross people anyway all right well wgn's ryan bro thank you so much no for problem. talking about this today all right we're gonna take a little break get you to news all that good stuff back in just a bit here on 720 wgn 720 wgn it's amy guth in for anna devlantis thanks so much for being with us this afternoon appreciate you for joining us and hanging out today all right well lots of news is ahead this week as i'm sure you've been
been watching, anybody that's even looked at the news for a second knows that it is a big, big and historic week ahead. And so I have Paul Lisnick on the phone. He is WGN TV's political analyst and host of WGN TV Political Report, which airs Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. He is here with us today. Paul, hey, how are you? Hey, good, Amy. Of course, it's new must-see TV on Sunday mornings now, right? That's right. That's exactly right. All right. All right. So lots ahead this week, and I think it's really overwhelming for people people following it closely, people who are trying not to follow it closely. I think it's overwhelming, but worth talking about and kind of digging into about just because this is the third time this has happened, the third time we've walked down this path. So there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of what is precedent? How is it set? What do we expect? Take us through it, if you would. Well, sure. And, of course, it is so highly partisan that trying to get anybody reasonable uh, on this discussion is really tough. So let me just start by trying to be factual. First of all, the Republicans, we didn't know up until maybe an hour ago uh, what things even were going to look like because we didn't even have a response from uh, the White House in terms of the allegations to the Democrats. Well, that is out now. But what we don't know is exactly how is this going to play out over the next period of days because Senator Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, who's going to control much of this, um, he's not yet released what his intended resolution or schedule is going to be. Um, there's information leaking about it. We're hearing about it. Here's what it sounds like it's going to be. Uh, it looks like that Democrats will get 24 hours to present their case. Republicans will get 24 hours to present their case. Originally, the thought was they would each do so over a period of about four days each. Well, what the latest word seems to be is, no, Democrats, you'll get two days, two 12-hour days, so that's noon to midnight, our time, to present your case. And, of course, it's actually later than that, because when there's breaks, the clock won't be running. And then Republicans, you'll get 24 hours to do the same. Republicans have said previously they don't plan to use all their 24 hours. Uh, and then after that, will be another 24 hours where senators can submit questions to Chief Justice John Roberts, who will then choose to ask the questions. And then following that, says Senator McConnell, we'll decide whether there's going to be witnesses. Now, that's the schedule. And if that schedule happens as I just portrayed it, then you've got testimony from Democrats on Wednesday and Thursday, Democrat, uh, testimony from Republicans on Friday and Saturday. Yes, Saturday will be a meeting day. They'll be off Sunday. And then questions from Justice Roberts would be on Monday, potentially into Tuesday. So, And then things could sort of wrap up shortly thereafter. If witnesses are permitted, this thing continues to go on. Uh, McConnell seems to want to sort of put a kibosh on all of that, so if there are no witnesses, that'll wrap it up by sort of early to mid-next week. And that's the schedule as it you know lays out. That could completely change tomorrow because Democrats try, are going to try and sort of stir things up at the beginning by asking for witness decisions to be made early on. McConnell will fight that. The odds are McConnell has the votes to stop Democrats, so that is yet to play out. Did that clarify things? Right, clear as much. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Indeed. Well, it seems like witnesses from the jump has been one of the key points of contention here. Do you have any indication? I mean, I think a lot of signs are pointing to uh, McConnell prevailing here and, and not having witnesses. But do you have any indication of really how that's going to shake out? Well, nobody really does. But, um, you know, as a lawyer myself as well, you just sort of look ahead. Look, as a lawyer, 
you want to have these witnesses, right? You, you don't want to have a trial without the testimony. Uh, I understand Republican response to that is, well, why didn't the House do it before? Democrat response to that is, because the White House wouldn't give us any of this stuff. We would have done it, but we couldn't. Republicans say, well, then you could have gone to court. Democrats say, but the courts take years. We don't have that. So both sides kind of have their positions on, you know, why we ended up now with where we are. The problem is that when there's an effort to get witnesses, and specifically Democrats want to hear it now from Lev Parnas, that's that Rudy Giuliani friend uh, who apparently has been involved in several sessions and meetings, so he says, don't know if that's true, that's why you have to testify. And they want to hear from Rudy Giuliani and Mick Mulvaney and many others. The problem would be, Amy, is that the White House will fight any of that, and if the White House fights it, it goes to court, and things get prolonged. That's that's the problem, is that there are no immediate answers to any of this. And if, by the way, Justice Roberts rules on something, like he says, yes, I will permit the testimony, all the senators have to do is take a vote. And then 51 votes in any direction can reverse Chief Justice Roberts. So what listeners probably need to understand is, if they're trying to equate this to a court of law, you really can't, because here the senators sit as jurors, but they're also in that way the decision makers. They're not only jurors, but they'll also decide what testimony they're going to hear and whatnot, and Republicans will follow the lead of the leader, Democrats will follow the lead of their leaders. So other than the witness issue that we have to kind of wait and see what how that shakes out and, and what goes down there, what other curveballs might we anticipate? Well, it's witnesses, it's documents. Um, one of the curveballs could be a motion early on, before any of this gets going, made by Republicans to say, we want this whole thing dismissed. Now, they've got the, the power to do it. Um, my position on it as, as an analyst has been, I don't think that's what the Senate will do, because you do have, you know, five senators, Republicans or so, who are in difficult races, Susan Collins, Cory Gardner of Colorado, Susan Collins of Maine, and a few others, where... Um, you know, they're, they're concerned about if they say, yeah, let's shut this thing down now, they go home to a more moderate environment, and that may cost them. On the other hand, if they say, no, let's have witnesses, let's, let's permit all this to happen to kind of a piece of their constituents, we're still in a period of time where the Trump administration could solicit a Trumper to run against them. So Susan Collins or Cory Gardner or a couple of others could find themselves being challenged in the primary by a Trump uh, candidate, Trump-selected candidate, and now they've got a primary battle they didn't want in the first place. So that's what sets up this whole question of, ugh, what do you do? If you have that, that vote early on, it's a no-win. Now, the White House, specifically President Trump, he doesn't want an early vote. He wants to show. He wants Rudy Ju- I'm sorry. He wants um, um, uh, the, the, his, his lawyers, why am I drawing a blank, Alan Dershowitz and others, you know, put on the show. That's what the president, of course, loves. Um, he has since changed his tune, and in the recent filings, which we have to assume the president has approved, now all of a sudden they want this thing dismissed early on. So that would be a, a, ra- a wrench that could be thrown into it, which would be an early motion to dismiss it, and if it passes... It's done. We go back to our not go back to our normal lives. Mm-hmm. Lots of stuff to watch. Lots of things here. Oh yeah. A- along with this kind of contentious point about witnesses, also is a lot of conversation around the idea of issuing subpoenas for documents, which I think is kind of falling in the same place as witnesses to some extent. So what's really fascinating is the reason you've got this desire for documents is because the White House has turned nothing over. Now the Democrats' position on it has been. Actually, Article 2 of the impeachment articles, which is obstruction of Congress. You, White House, the Democrats say, have given us not one document, not one person to testify. Um, this has never been the case. Bill Clinton, when he was being uh, impeached, 
turned over documents and, and allowed witnesses to testify. In fact, Clinton himself testified uh, back in the Nixon days. We never got to the point of this hearing, but during the the com- uh, committee hearings, the White House turned over documents. Turned, in fact, the only thing they fought over, of course, was the famous tape, and they ultimately lost in the Supreme Court over that tape. So here, the Democrats' position is, you are obstructing Congress. That's enough to get you removed from office. Republicans' view is, no, that's there's nothing impeachable here. So the fact that, that the White House is exerting its executive privilege to prevent the information from being disclosed, hey, that's what the separation of powers is all about. What's interesting, Amy, is the White House seems to not be contesting the facts that Democrats are putting forth. What they're doing is seeing it just completely different, essentially saying, yeah, this stuff all happened, and what's your point? Or maybe to quote Mick Mulvaney, get over it. I will say part of my background is as a jury consultant. My office worked in the OJ cases, lots of other famous cases. And one of the things that I always try and and, and do with my clients in those situations is to say, look, you need to figure out what the story of the other side is and then be able to look at the jurors and go, yeah, yeah, those are the facts. But let me tell you why I win. That's exactly what Republicans seem to be trying to do right now. Very, very interesting stuff here. So we're going to take a quick break. We're talking with Paul Lisnack from WGN-TV. He is the political analyst there. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about what we can what we can expect in the news in the week ahead. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. Amy Guth in for Anna Davlantis today with you until 3 o'clock. We've been talking with Paul Lisnack, WGN-TV political analyst and the host of WGN-TV Political Report, which airs Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. Paul, thanks so much for staying with us. There's so many sure. questions still this uh, that face us in the week ahead. You know, I, I think you, you always have such a great way of breaking things down and looking at it from so many angles. So I really appreciate Thank you. you being with us. So I want to talk a little bit about John Bolton, because what an interesting character in this this whole... It sounds like you have a dog with you. Yeah, well, he just heard you brought up John Bolton, and that kind of gets him going. <laughs> I, I think that's a thing that happens sometimes. So, so you know, it, it's kind of an... It, maybe unusual isn't the word, but a noteworthy move in any case to say, hey, if I'm called, I will definitely testify. That's, that's kind of like, ooh, call on me, call on me. It just seems like an interesting move. What is your analysis of that? Well, and when I mentioned the names earlier the Democrats wanted, I probably should have led by saying John Bolton, because John Bolton, who probably, you know, no, well, let me take a step back. Republicans have said, you know, Democrats, everything you've put forth, it's all secondhand and thirdhand. You have nobody with direct knowledge. And, of course, Democrats have responded by going, because you wouldn't let anybody with direct knowledge talk to us. Well, enter John Bolton, who says, I'm willing to talk, just subpoena me. And, um, and he, that is firsthand knowledge. That is firsthand uh, information, of course, that he was famously known for walking out of a meeting with Giuliani and others saying, I'm not going to be part of this drug deal. I'm sure uh, Democrats and, and maybe the American public would like to know what is it John Bolton knows and what, what was he saying. So what will happen is when the Democrats ask for Bolton's testimony, and they will, if it gets voted down, that's the end of it. There are so you see, Democrats need four Republicans to go their way. They don't need 50 Republicans. They need a total of 51 votes, and they have 47. So if they can get four Republicans to say, yes, let's listen to Bolton testify, and that could be Susan Collins, um, and, and Mitt Romney has said he'd be interested. So the, they could get four, four uh, Republicans who could at least join that answer to say we want to hear it, then the problem will be the White House will say, oh, sorry, executive privilege, he's not allowed to testify, and the, and the battles begin. So see, that's the problem, is that even in that kind of scenario where I can walk you through the logistics that get you to the point of Bolton testifying, if the White House fights it, 
you can't avoid the court battle. So, uh, and, and nobody wants this thing to go on for months and months and months and months. So that's the problem. In the end, do I think any of this testimony will happen? You know, I'm going to put my money on no, just because of the conflicts that come up with it. Democrats know that there's no way President Trump is being removed. I don't think they're having this trial to get him removed. I think they're having this trial to get the issues aired. They want the American people to hear, not only on CNN and MSNBC, but on Fox News, all of the information that they're saying, all the laws that you will, that they're saying the president has violated, which Democrats would say, if folks only watch conservative media, they've never heard this stuff before. Not the way they need to hear it. I think that's what this is about. They simply want to get it out there prior to the election. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a lot of a lot of analysts are kind of starting to be of that same mind that, that you are here on this of saying, look, the, the numbers are the numbers. It really looks unlikely that this is going to be a long drawn up process. And it seems unlikely that it will that it will result in a conviction. What will what is much more likely is that perhaps this is about being in the court of public opinion and influencing the 2020 election. And the reason for that position is because, I'm assuming most of listeners know this, but it's not a majority of senators that, that remove the president from office. It's two-thirds. So the Democrats would actually need 20 Republican senators to cross over to their side. It's just not happening. Yeah. It, you know, another thing I've, I found really interesting, I went back, just this is my own nerdiness showing, but I went back and looked at what the procedural rules were during the Clinton impeachment. And it was very interesting of just kind of some of it felt a bit like pomp and circumstance, right? A bit just kind of showmanship, but a bit of like, OK, this is why this happens. This is why this is, which I found a very interesting read. If you were going to characterize the Clinton ordeal with the Trump ordeal, right? Both of these two things, and I say ordeal because it's been like such a saga. It It's continuing to be like dinner table conversation and Facebook and like so many people are just talking about this topic again and again and again in such such high stakes ways. If you were to characterize the two, the Clinton impeachment process and the Trump process, how would you describe the differences in the two? Well, first of all, in terms of the rules, uh, Mitch McConnell says he's going to follow the Clinton rules. It doesn't seem that that's what's happening. You heard me say earlier that we're looking at 12-hour days. They didn't do that under Bill Clinton. Um, they had uh, six-hour days, I think it was, or maybe it was eight-hour days, um, over three days. It was spread over three days. So you have that difference. You also had testimony. You had the president's testimony. You had documents. So when you try and make comparisons on the level of that kind of logistical information, there's not really much of a comparison to make. This, this White House has been far more um, uh, far more definitive in terms of its its refusing to comply than the Clinton White House was. Um, so as far as you know, the, the feeling in the country and social media, I mean, you really tap into something important there. We didn't have Facebook when Bill Clinton was was president. We weren't tweeting when Bill Clinton was president. So social media, and we didn't have Fox News when Bill Clinton was president. Well, actually, we would have needed Fox. We didn't have MSNBC when Bill Clinton was president uh, in those in those days. Although MSNBC was just getting going, I was actually on NBC MSNBC seen its early days, but it wasn't what it is now. It wasn't political. It was a lot of legal shows, other kind of things. So um, the bottom line is, is that social media and the the growth of, um, of partisan media and channels has really just changed the playing field. So in many ways, we're in a very different world today than we were from the Bill Clinton days. And so uh, you know, to try and draw a comparison, I'm not even sure it's fair because we're on different planets right now. That's a very, very good point. What do you think is most missing from the public narrative when we're talking about this impeachment process, when we're talking about, you know, it's been very divided conversation, but 
how when you know you have such tight analysis on this and you you're so on top of this topic and and have so much expertise in this area with your analysis what do you what is the thing you find yourself just pained to not be hearing oh i can answer that in an instant and thank you for asking that because i have the time on radio to say what i can't don't have the time to do on television which is People do not listen to both sides or expose themselves to both sides of the arguments. Social media, television, it doesn't matter. And, and here's my personal example of that. My role on WGN is as an analyst. I am not a commentator. I do not take positions. And when I take a position, uh, when I say something on the air, I will always counter it with, if I say something that, that I realize is something that uh, is, is pro-Trump, I'll kind of counter it by saying, and Democrats respond this way. I'll always counter everything I say. But Amy, if you saw the emails, and I'll let your listeners know, if they email me at the station or through the station, I ask that those come to me, because I want to respond to listeners who I often think aren't listening to everything I'm saying. And all people will hear is one side, and they usually hear the side that they disagree with, and that's what gets them to respond. So what I always tell people, or when I'm giving speeches, I did this just the other day to a group, the bottom line is, if you are a Fox watcher, you got to put on CNN and MSNBC for a while. If you're an MSNBC and, 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 and CNN watcher, watch Fox for a while. You absolutely have to know what folks who are holding different worldviews from yours are seeing and what they're being informed by. That's what makes us all more intelligent viewers. The reason I believe that I can be the analyst and not the commentator is because I can pretty much, if you were to say to me, what is Trump saying about that? What are his detractors saying about that? I could detail for you both sides. And that's what helps inform me to take the positions that I do in my own life for myself, which is to say, okay, I'm seeing what both sides are saying. You've got to be able to see both sides. And most people are not willing to do that. The environment we're in is so partisan. People are only exposing themselves to their own side. That's all they hear, and they're ready to fight. I could not agree more. I feel like media literacy is such a big topic, and one I think about, that is a hill I will die on. I think about that topic. Yeah all the time. And it's so true. And even in our social feeds, we essentially have surrounded ourselves with echo chambers because we tend to like and follow people and speakers that agree with us, that that confirm our ideas and our hunches and only makes our ideas stronger. And I think there is a very big issue with confirmation bias in which you can be presenting both sides of something right down the middle. And exactly what you said, people will hear exactly the opposite of what they believe all the time. They'll, you know, often they'll be like, oh, I, I, I heard you and you were being very pro this thing I'm not. <laughs> and, and right. How well, I, I had somebody write me last week who said, why don't you just admit you're a Democrat? Everything, you're, you know, and I responded to him by saying, you're not listening to me. Because if you listen to what I say in the next sentence, it's the other way around. The next day I was back on the air and he wrote me again with an apology. He said, you know what? I apologize. He said, because I did listen, and you are giving both sides. But then he went on to explain. He said, look, I'm a Trump supporter, and I just believe the media doesn't take any time, or at least enough time, to talk about all the great things the president is doing. And I responded to that by saying, look, whatever, the pre- whatever is pleasing you about what the president has done in terms of policies is not necessarily news of the day. So we're, we're not going to talk about impeachment and say, but let's take a moment to talk about how great the economy is doing. News doesn't work that way. Television doesn't have time to do that. So that particular person, the reason I love telling that story is because when the new show came on the air, he wrote me again 
and said, I want you to know I'm watching the new show. And he said, I'm not going to write you every week to tell you what I think about it. He said, but you've opened my eyes to realizing there are two sides that I can listen to both of them, and I think you're fair in what you're presenting. I consider that a huge victory to get somebody who had clearly a mindset, which I don't judge. I mean, it's just, he, can, he can think whatever he wants and have whatever positions he wants. But the fact that he was open to saying, I listen more carefully, you are being balanced in what you're saying, and that works for me, and turns into a fan. I'm good with that. That is so interesting. I, I feel like we could talk another hour just on this topic, because I think it's well, let's do it. a really, really interesting <laughs> one. My, my next guest will probably have something to say about that, but oh. at some future time, we okay. have to do that. Paul Listnick from WGNTV, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. It's my pleasure. I do a quick book. My book is called Assume Guilt, if people want to read fiction about about the Illinois political corruption. There's fun. Ooh, that's a whole other ball of wax we're going to talk about it. sometime. Okay, well, thanks so thanks, much, Amy. All right, have well. a good one. All right, we're going to take a little break, get your news, all that good stuff. The news from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom is coming up next. Seven twenty WGN. Hello, it's Amy Guth in for Anna Davlantis today with you till three o'clock. Thanks for being with us today. Lots to do, and as you know, it is Money Monday, so that means we have all the money questions, and we have brought in an expert to help us navigate them. Joining us by phone is Paul Nolte, who is the senior VP and senior portfolio manager at Kingsview Wealth Management. Paul, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being with us today. Nice to be with you, Amy. So, my goodness, there's so many things to talk about. There's so many topics when we start thinking about money. You write a weekly kind of summary of kind of here's the economic outlook, here's what's on my mind with money. What are those things that are on your mind this week, looking at this week in money? You know, this week is obviously a holiday-shortened week with today most all the markets being closed. And we're just now getting started into earnings season, so a lot of corporations are reporting their earnings. Um, and we're interested to hear what they have to say about trade. Uh, what do they say about the future? What outlook do they see going forward? And it gives us at least a little bit of a sense of what we might expect from the equity markets this year. And the second part of it is going to be uh, inflation. We got some numbers last week on inflation, which were quiet, which means that interest rates should be able to stay relatively low going forward, so we don't anticipate much in the way of higher interest rates. And then the last part is we've had a market that has really gone up pretty dramatically uh, over the last four months or so. Uh, Last quarter was up about 9%, which is not a bad year, and this month so far the market's up about 3%, which is not a bad quarter. So we're anticipating at least that the markets maybe slow down a little bit, catch their breath uh, a bit here in the next uh, week or two before maybe going higher still. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there's. it seems like there's still a little bit, though much less than there was, a little bit of speculation and, and maybe a little bit of fear among investors of, is there, you know, I think a lot of people thought very certainly there was going to be a big problem ahead, something looming on the horizon, a, a big recession, something like that, a big, big drop. Is that completely resolved? Is that still looming? It seems like that was all the market analysts were talking about for a little while, for a few weeks, uh, for the last couple of months, and then suddenly it just got much quieter. Is that, do you, in your mind, is that totally resolved? Are we, we, have we moved into a new space or is that still something we should be kind of keeping in the back of our minds? Well, I mean, the the thing that we're kind of using is don't worry, be happy. And it's kind of what the markets are right now. We've thrown a lot of stuff at the financial markets from 
issues in the Middle East to a couple trade wars, um, which are still ongoing, um, an impeachment, um, an inverted yield curve, <clears throat> and some concerns over repo rates, which is kind of in the dark corners of the financial market. In all of those things, you look around and, and the markets are sitting at all-time highs. So there's always something to worry about. And I think what we're going to find as we look backwards, that whatever shows up in the future um, is going to be something that nobody has anticipated. But that being said, I'm not thinking we need to worry about those things right now. What we have seen over the last year especially is some of those events have kind of come to the fore the markets have backed off, and they've backed off 3%, 5%, which is not bad. And, again, it's the market breathing, and they continue higher because the economic backdrop is still good. As long as the economy in the U.S. continues to move along and, and do well here, and so far we're seeing it from the unemployment numbers, um, production, retail sales, et cetera, they continue to, to do well, maybe not fabulous, but continue to do well we think the equity markets can continue generally higher. Switching to a little bit different topic, I know this is one you've talked about a bit, and that is 401k consolidation. There's some really interesting data around this. One one number that really stuck out to me is around 25 million Americans left behind money in a 401k when moving from one job to another. And that was over a period of 10 years where that, that survey that survey was, was taken from the Government Accountability Office. But I think that's really interesting that, I mean, that you could just kind of forget Oh yeah, that's right. I have this 401k, but but what is that process when you going, "Oh, wait, years ago I worked at this place. I think I started a 401k. Now I kind of need to pull it all together." How do you approach that? When we talk to a lot of our clients, <clears throat> that's one of the things we do talk about. How many different jobs have you had? Do you have an old 401k? Oh yeah, I had one, you know, 10 years ago, whatever. You will still get paperwork from them either on a quarterly or annual basis. So right about now, you should be getting year-end statements from a lot of your 401k providers. But what we try to do is we try to get them to consolidate for a variety of reasons. One is then you have all of your 401ks in one place. Uh, we, we roll them over into an IRA at a custodian like a Schwab or a TD Ameritrade or something like that. And then everything is consolidated in one place. That means your balances are certainly a lot larger because now you've grouped two or three into one, you're not as likely then also to take out an IRA or a 401k. Some of them might be small, $500,000. You say, you know, I'll just take that. Just give me the cash for it. The problem is you may be assessed penalties for that, the 10% early withdrawal if you're earlier than 59 and or younger than 59 and a half, and then throw it on top of your income. So a lot of people look at those smaller dollars and say, yeah, just give me the cash, but it may create a tax issue that you're not thinking about when you pay, wind up filing your tax return. And, and, and nobody the wants a tax is, issue. It just makes it a little bit easier to manage. So having the dollars in one place makes it easier to, to keep track of. 
Indeed. Well, yeah, nobody wants a tax issue. That's not good for anybody. No one wants any of those kind of things. No surprises on the with the IRS. Um, all right. So we're going to take a little break because I still have so many questions for you. Lots of things to talk about when we're thinking about Money Monday. We're talking with Paul Nolte, who's the Senior VP and Senior Por- Portfolio Manager at Kingsview Wealth Management. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. It's Amy Guth in for Anna Devlantis today. And it is Money Monday, my friends. And so we have all the questions. We got lots of things to talk about. In fact, we got more questions than we have time, I'm pretty sure. But we have Paul Nolte on the phone, who is the Senior Vice President and Senior Portfolio Manager at Kingsview Wealth Management, who is sharing his expertise with us and helping us be smarter about our dollars. So we were talking a bit about 401ks and the importance of consolidating them and getting those balances up. I want to switch a little bit to talk about uh, the idea of... Um, Paying when we're like our regular expenses, you the how we can use cashback cards. I think in a lot of ways we talk about credit being like, oh, stay away from it. Don't don't drop your credit. Don't you know? Don't run it up. Don't amass a lot of debt. But your position, it sounds like, is that we can use it in a smart way and kind of help ourselves. Talk to me about that if you would. Yeah, and you know the the key to it really is first rule: pay it off every month. So you do not want to carry balances that tend to be 16% or higher um, fees on or, or interest payments on those. <clears throat> so you wind up losing that benefit that you might might get. But the second part is think about your spending habits. Um, do you travel? Um, you know, do you frequent uh, a different re- or a retailer? Uh, do you use? Do you drive a lot? So maybe a lot of gasoline purchases. And so what you want to do is take a look at the credit card and match it up with where you use it the most. So, for example, if you're at Target, um, take a look at the Target credit card. If you're traveling, maybe take a look at one of the airline cards or a hotel card, a gas card, which gas station do you use. And you wind up getting either cash back on those, you wind up getting discounts on, on different services uh, or uh, different goods that they have. So. Take a look at your spending habits, match up the credit card that, with those spending habits, and you find that you might save a little bit of money as you make those normal purchases you otherwise would make. That's a really smart idea and really sound advice. There are so many, I'm fascinated by this, so many you know, blogs and websites devoted to particularly travel points and just how to use them, kind of how to, I don't want to say game the system because they're, they're not breaking any rules, but certainly how to use them really smartly of like stretch stretching your your travel point dollars that are it's just fascinating i think just in the travel point uh you know credit card points around airline miles and things like that that is a fascinating realm kind of with its own community attached to it in a way oh it is and you know certainly everybody looks at you know i'm saving up for a trip to hawaii or down to the caribbean whatever it may be uh but again there are a lot of different ways to go a lot of different cards a lot of different um tricks, if you will, as you outlined. So you want to make sure that you read through everything and understand if I use the card for A, B, and C, I'm going to get these types of rewards back. I need this amount of rewards to get to the travel trip that I want to or the hotel or whatever it is. So you have to be an active consumer and an understanding consumer about what you're, uh, what you're signing up for. So it is a little more complicated, and certainly the rules do change. We've seen airline miles change some of their frequent flyer miles and and requirements for rewards. So be aware that whatever you sign up for today may not always be uh, the case 
going forward. So again, you want to be an aware and active consumer with these. Right, right. I, I think that's an important point. Also, I think when we talk about uh, you know, using credit card points to go somewhere. Usually that conversation is about those once in a lifetime things. You know, I got my points and I took this dream trip or I upgraded my seat or whatever that is. But often credit cards will give you kind of deals on your regular expenses or you can kind of link a card to, hey, every time you buy gas or shop at a particular place, you get a little bit different. Uh, maybe you get more points or more cash back or things like that, that I think that's also something probably to look at as well. Oh, certainly. And as I said, if you're if you're frequently shopping at a, at a different department uh, department stores, they will give you added points um, if you're using it at their store. Um, they will give you discounts uh, and more cash back. So again, if you look at it and say, you know, I can I fly every once in a while. I I don't take a ton of trips. Maybe the airline or the hotel isn't for you. But some of these other ones that give you cash back and say, well, that's that's a great deal. I spend X number of dollars and I get $20 back or something like that. That's, that's good for me. So, again, you have to take a look at how you are spending and what your spending habits are and then take a look at some of those cards and see how that lines up. But the key, again, is make sure you pay that balance off every month. Otherwise, all those benefits get to be very expensive very quickly. That's right. Suddenly those benefits are eaten up in interest real quick for sure. Well, so, you know, I want to shift a little more and kind of take a bigger, uh, kind of a wider view. Here we are. It's January. It's a new decade. I think a lot of people are thinking about, you know, kind of getting their act together, right? Maybe starting some really good financial habits for the new year, maybe for the new decade, things like that. And we tend to talk a lot about, um, two groups and when we're talking about money we talk about people starting out and some smart moves you can make to invest in your future later and then we tend to talk a lot about folks who are nearing retirement yet that leaves a big swath of people and i i admit i'm probably asking for selfish reasons right that like those in those of us in our 40s people in their 50s that may retirement's up there but it's not maybe the most immediate thing what are some steps people can do if they're in between they're not new to the workforce but retirement's not yet upon you what are those that kind of middle group what are some really good financial goals that they should be setting well, a couple of things that we take a look at with, with that group is, first of all, kind of make an assessment of where you're at. How much do you have in savings? How much do you have in 401k, et cetera? Um, where are you at with um, a house, mortgage payment, uh, car payments, credit card payment? Um, are you paying off your credit cards on time? Or are you letting them stretch out over a couple months before you pay them off? So what kind of what are your habits, if, if you will? The second part then is to start to take a look at one. If I'm paying off my, if I'm not paying off my credit cards, I need to make that as part of my uh, goal this year is to be very religious about paying off my credit card because that is in 16 to 18 percent rate of return. Things that you're not having to pay, you want to do that often. Um, the second part is, am I maxing out my 401k or at least getting the match from my company? Um, many companies match up to 5%, so that's free money that they're giving you. So you want to make sure you're at least there. And what I've counseled a lot of them, I say, well, you know, I'm not sure I can save more. I said, well, if you get a raise in the beginning part of this year, you get a 3% raise, 5%, whatever it is, take 1% and put that into your 401K and do that each year, and that will slowly get you up to that 10 to 15% 
top category without really hurting yourself. You're looking at it going, I'm still getting a little bit more money because I got my raise, but I'm also putting a little bit more money away. Sounds like an easy way to do that. I'm sorry. No, no, absolutely. And the last part is take a look at at your debt structure. Um, A lot of my clients are very interested in paying off their home, want to do it very quickly. And sometimes you have to take a look at debt as not a not a bad thing, but a good thing. If I can borrow at four percent, and at least over the last uh, six seven years, the markets have been giving you six seven percent rates of return. It doesn't necessarily make sense to hurry up and pay that low cost debt off. Maybe stretch that out a little bit more and put more money away for yourself. Mm-hmm. Very sound advice there. Um, in that kind of thinking around planning for retirement, even if it's not right around the corner, or if it is, there is a topic that you've raised before that I think is an interesting one about um, changes to IRA accounts that people should be aware of, particularly because it raises some interesting thoughts when when you are naming beneficiaries and naming, like setting up your estate and things like that. Outline those for me, if you would. The way they change Secure Act, um, this was just passed in December, uh, it used to be if if you inherited an IRA from your parents, you could stretch that out, meaning the payments would come out to you over the course of your lifetime or your um, deceased parents as if they were still alive. So that would continue on. So you could stretch it out for a long period of time. The money that you took out was taxable to you. What they changed was they said, now you have only 10 years. You have to take out all the money in 10 years. So if it's $100,000 that you inherited from your mom or dad, you have to take out $10,000 a year. That goes on your income taxes, ordinary income, that you pay at your tax bracket. Your mom or dad, given the fact that they may be in their 80s, maybe even older than that, their tax bracket is probably a lot lower than yours. So at some point, the conversation may be had have them be a little bit more aggressive about taking out their IRA, paying the tax at their tax rate, putting it into a personal account or whatever, and after they pass away, then that personal account moves to you. No taxes paid. They've already paid it at their lower bracket. So it's a way to kind of take a look at the two different tax brackets, yours or your parents. If your parents are a lot lower than you, have them take out the IRA and be a little bit more aggressive about it that money will eventually, if they don't spend it, will come to you and they've already paid the tax on it. Well, that's the trick. If they don't spend it, <laughs> they take it out suddenly like, hmm, grandpa has a boat. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Always want to have somebody else with the boat, even if it is grandpa. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Hey, I, I don't begrudge any grandpa having a boat for sure. Okay. What are some other things you're going to be watching maybe in the week or two ahead? Um, a couple of things that we're going to be watching is certainly, uh, again, the earnings numbers that we talked about. Um, we just finished up with the uh, unemployment report. We're going to be looking for that in February. Uh, we're going to keep an eye on commodity prices in general. One of the things that we've noticed since September or so, commodity prices have kind of picked up a little bit. The Fed has said they're going to be on the sidelines through the election, um, but we're going to be looking at commodity prices and seeing if we do get a little bit of a pickup there, which might be an indication that not only is the U.S. gaining strength, but the global economy is gaining strength. So those are a couple things that we're going to want to keep an eye on to see if economic growth does pick up, and that will be supportive of, of higher stock prices both here as well as internationally. And we're a lot more interested in the international market than we are in the U.S. market. The U.S. market has kind of dominated over the last 10 years. 
we think that we're going to be in a period of shift away from the U.S. toward more international markets, which are a lot cheaper than the U.S., um, which we think will do better over the next three to five years. And, and what is sparking that change? I think some of it is we've experienced a very strong dollar uh, in the U.S. It's been a very U.S.-centric market. Many of the foreign markets don't have huge technology exposures like the U.S. does. Um, we're starting to see the dollar weaken here a little bit. Um, and, again, the international markets, especially emerging markets, dominate a little bit more with China and India. They're actually starting to pick up here a little bit as we get the trade war put into the rearview mirror. Um, so I think those economies picking up some steam will actually help. We think the dollar, as a result of that, will come down, and that will benefit investors who do send their money overseas. Come translating back to the U.S. in a cheaper dollar will be of a benefit to international investors. Really, really always very interesting to to analyze money, both ma- micro and macro, right, to look at the, the larger economic picture globally, domestically, and then look at our own economic picture within our own lives. So I really appreciate your time. Paul Nolte, Senior VP and Senior Portfolio Manager at Kingsview Wealth Management. Where can people reach you if they have questions on anything that you've talked about today? They can always drop me an email, and I'm happy to continue the conversation at pnolte at kingsviewam. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Always enjoyable. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right. So time for news and we'll get you there right away. 720 WGN. It's Amy Guth in for Anna Devlantis today with you till three o'clock. Thanks for being with us today. Lots to do here on the program. Still, we are joined now by Jamal Cole, who is the CEO and founder of My Hood, My Block, My City, who, uh, Jamal, I don't know if you remember this, but we talked on the phone years and years ago. We were still, WGN was still over at Tribune Tower, but I remember talking with you. You joined me late, late one night on the radio. Thanks for joining me again. Hey, well, thank you for supporting for so long, and um, thank you all for always amplifying the messages that um, the guys give me, so thank you. Certainly, glad to do it. Well, so what has changed since we last talked? Well, a lot has, but one thing that has changed for you is that you now have a new book out called It's Not Regular. Tell me about that book, and it it sounds like it came together really, really quickly. Yeah, but you know... um, I run an after-school program for youth, and when I pick them up on Monday, you know, after the weekend, I say, hey, how was your weekend? And they always say, oh, I had a good time, Jamal. I ate some good food. I got to see some family, some friends. I had a great time. And I said, well, would you guys go to club? And they say, oh, no, I just went to Leaks on 79th. This is the best funeral I've ever been to. Mm. The best funeral they've ever been to. These kids are ninth grade and have been to 15 funerals. That's not regular. You know, it's not regular for them to have to order their breakfast every morning through bulletproof glass windows. It's not regular for them to have paddy wagons parked outside the front of their high schools. This stuff is not regular, but they've normalized it like it's regular. So I wrote a book to tell them to wake up. You have to start calling out these injustices and challenging these things, and it's not regular. And so your book relies a lot on visuals to highlight the normalization of a lot of these injustices. How did you go about beginning you know, such a big undertaking? That's a lot to take on. So what was your approach to doing that in such a visual way? Yeah, well, I wasn't driving around Chicago looking for things that weren't regular, but as I drove down Roosevelt and um, in California and I looked to my left, there was a Louis Vuitton casket in the window of a funeral home. So I just, that stops you like a speed bump. You say, whoa, like that's not regular. So I just jotted down the location and then came back with a photographer and then took the photo, edited it, put it in the book. I and mean, I did that when I saw, you know, um, 
a cheap divorce sign on a billboard, like the biggest billboard in the community says real cheap divorces or $6,000 tax advances or we buy houses with cash or there's, you walk inside of Walgreens and all the cost syrup is locked up. That's not regular. So it really was just over the course of a you know, six-month period, writing down these things that weren't regular and then um, going back with the photographer and taking photos of them because I want to show people these. They're, they're hidden in plain sight. You can't see them. And this is translated into a bit of a social media campaign with around hashtag it's not regular. How has that been going? Yeah, you know, I gave a speech last year for uh, King Day and um, in front of, you know, Rahm Emanuel and Senator Durbin. And it was at the, you know, the MLK breakfast, the interfaith breakfast they host every year. And I gave a speech called It's Not Regular. And then after that speech, you know, it pretty much went viral. It was shared, you know, 60,000 times, it was viewed 300,000 times. And people in South Africa were hashtagging It's Not Regular. And so that's what, I was like, okay, it's not regular. And so I just, for the next six months, I just wrote a book about, you know, the speech uh, called It's Not Regular. And, um, you know, something's wrong in Chicago, right? In some community areas, the, the quality of life, the health, and the safety is, is worse than in some third-world countries. So we got to start challenging these things, you know, calling out these injustices and raising awareness. And that's what the aim was for this book. Mm-hmm. And with, you know, that being said, I, I feel like that's a whole city problem. That's not just a problem for one or two or three neighborhoods to deal with. That's something that every Chicagoan has to deal with, if you ask me. Um, mm-hmm. So what what are the things that that you want to come from the book? What do you you know, you want people to see this and realize, wow, this is really being normalized. This this is not what is normal. Then, mm-hmm. you know, then what do we do with all that? Yeah, so great question. Uh, I always get from people on, on Facebook, I might as well have a premium membership on Reddit. I get so much feedback from Reddit, but I don't have an account. But people say, oh, Jamal, you know, um, they put up bulletproof glass on the north side, too. You know, that's that's not happening on the south and west sides. Don't you think you're being a little sensitive? Oh, or Jamal, they chain the ink pens down to the tables at the banks on the north side, too. Uh, don't you think you're being a little sensitive? It's not just happening on the south. Listen, just because something happens on the north side doesn't mean it's right. And just because something is, is uh, normal doesn't mean it's right either, right? My hope was that um, – my, my hope, actually, for this book was to, to raise awareness, and I want us to do our best to hear each other, right? I want people to see – I want them to hear from both sides of the bulletproof glass windows, right? I want them to hear from the people that they call underbanked, under-resourced, and underprivileged. I want you to hear from those people. And I also want to hear from the ground-level business owner that might be agitated or annoyed or, you know, just frustrated because he's been robbed before, so that's why he has the bulletproof glass. So through these, those insights and those local experiences, I just want us to create a space for social change and also, um, you know, a culture of respect. Because right now, you know, it's, it's so much pain and so much indignity we have to deal with. I mean, if you have the nerves to put up bulletproof glass windows, at least have the decency to mop the floor. You know what I mean? That was, that was the purpose of the book. That's a that's you've just said two very powerful things. The sentence you just said, at least have the decency to mop the floor, right? That's a that's a powerful yeah. point. But also, just because something is normal doesn't mean it's right. I wrote that down. I think that's a really important sentence for everybody to carry with them and really think about. But you mentioned the word underbanked, so I want to transition a bit and talk about the about teaming up with Seaway Bank presidents and or the president of Seaway Bank and what's come from that. Yeah. So the goal was to you know. When people get their income tax checks back, instead of cashing at the currency exchange, I want them to cash it at Seaway Bank. And we're going to open up 100 accounts and put $25 in each of those accounts with the support of Seaway Bank, President Darrell Newell. Now, um, the, the issue is that there's all types of, you know, there's a myriad of legitimate reasons why people go to the currency exchange, right? Um, some people don't trust banks, um, you know, um, 
some people, the currency exchange is convenient and they, they provide services you need. You might not be able to afford a bank account. Some people can't maintain the minimum balance requirements of a bank account. Uh, sometimes the bank takes too long to clear your check. Uh, sometimes those fees and those overdraft fees are just not transparent. And uh, you might be denied access to a bank because you have, you know, prior bad banking experience. I'm not, I'm not one to judge. I'm not trying to call out anybody's actions. What I'm saying in the book is that after researching the sobering statistics of, you know, um, traditional financial service, uh, traditional versus non-traditional financial services market, um, I just want people to, um, I want them to stay woke. I want them to be, be conscious of not only how, but where they're conducting their financial business. Because if you're really trying to save money, then you should be doing business where it's most beneficial to you. Uh, over the long haul, the, the, the service the, the services are more costly and the fees are like triple or double they are of traditional financial institutions that um you know that offer similar serv- or, or you know similar services so i just want people to think about that and i want them to um, i'm not trying to shut down the currency exchange but i think we have to have a discussion about how much your money actually costs you right um is there a healthy or is there an unhealthy relationship with this currency exchange because according to the illinois um, the comptroller they say in, a, in a, on average People will spend forty thousand dollars in fees, in the course of a lifetime at these non-bank financial institutions. That's come on, man. That's a that's a lot of money to be spending at a, at a currency exchange. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So, as this book has been, you know, as you've you've been having conversations and and book signings, and you know, partnered with the bank and that kind of thing, and you're working to create this space. How has this book maybe changed or broadened what you're doing with your organization, My Hood, My Block, My City? Well, you know what? My last book was called Exposure is Key. So that's the solution, exposing kids to opportunities um, to solve, you know, to stop some of this violence in Chicago. So um, this this book right now is just open their eyes, you know, and it's also I'm an activist. So we all, always have to be responding to things going on in the community. But more so, I just wanted the kids to know, man, it's not regular for you to have 20 teachers in your school and there to be 12 substitute teachers. Right? It's not regular for the young women in my program to have to go to the bathroom and there's no toilet paper or, or paper towels. They're expected to learn and fill. That's not regular, right? It's not regular for, you know, there to be no parents at the basketball, football games because the parents are working two, three jobs. It's not regular for German shepherds to sniff them when they're going on the train in the morning. I, I talked to a kid recently. I said, hey, man, this kid, he had a, he had a lock on his iPhone. He said, he said, I don't put a lock on my iPhone, Jamal. I said, well, why not? He said, because just in case I get killed, I want the police to know how to contact my people. Mm. That's, that's not regular. But you, you ask a kid right now, you say, hey, what'd you do for your birthday? They say, oh, man, I didn't do nothing. I was in the house. I'm trying to stay out the way. You say, well, what'd you do for Christmas? Oh, I didn't do nothing. I was in the house just trying to stay out the way. Well, what'd you do for New Year's? Ain't nothing. Just was in the house. I'm just trying to stay out. The kids, they, they, they think they're taming the devil. And by staying inside and staying out the way. That's not regular that they just got to stay inside all year because they're trying to stay out the way. So this book was to wake, it was written to wake them up and show them how we're going to challenge these injustices together. And, uh, and that's, that's I, I enjoy it. It's, uh, it's definitely arousing the enthusiasm of the people. And I, my goal is to sell 1,000 copies. I think I've sold somewhere like 300 so far in the last week. Uh, please go to itsnotregular.org and get a copy, get two, and, uh, and let me know. A picture's worth 1,000 words. This book is full of great images. Wonderful. Jamal Cole, the new book is called It's Not Regular. You heard, go to itsnotregular.org. And if you follow me on Twitter, I'm going to tweet out a link to this after the program so you can find the book there. Jamal Cole, thanks so much for being with us. Always a pleasure to talk with you and hear about the work you're doing. All right, peace. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. All right. We're going to take a little break. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. 
720 WGN. It's Amy Guth in for Anna Devlantis. Hey, guess who I've got on the phone right now? Why, it's Hannah Stanley. Hello, Hannah Stanley. Thanks for joining me. Hello, Amy Guth. How are you? I'm well. Oh my gosh, you're up to all the things, doing lots of things. Please tell me about Gabby Road. So Gabby Road is um, a now nationally syndicated program uh, that can be heard here in Chicago, but also um, on a station near you, wherever you guys might be listening. And then you can also um, follow us on social media, which is Gabby Road um, Radio. And then it's a podcast. So we podcast our show and our um, primary interviews each week. And that's um, wherever wherever finer podcasts are downloaded. Um, and so that will be Gabby Road with Hannah. Fred and Justin. Marvelous. Well, Mazel Tov yeah. on that Thank national you. syndication step. That's a big Yeah. One. It's exciting. It's very, very exciting. We're very fortunate to have, um, you know, just a really good team with the three of us hosting and um, and working to put this together to, to have really positive stories and, um, you know, three different generations coming together on the same story and able to kind of talk it out and see everybody else's perspectives. Yes. What has been the most contentious issue or uh, issue episode so far? The one we did yesterday actually was when we were talking about this very subject. We were talking about um, Megxit, if you will, uh, with Meghan Markle and, and Prince Harry now stepping away from their official duties. Um, Fred and I are, I would call us royal hobbyists. We're very focused on that. Um, royal watchers, Fred's actually credentialed by um, over in London to cover the royal family. And then Justin, um, really just didn't get our irritation with this whole situation. He just thinks it's fine. So we got into it a little bit. Okay. Well, esteemed producer Jasmine Cooper and I have been talking about this topic quite a bit. Sure. What what is your feeling about Mexit? So I really don't blame them for wanting to take a different path in their lives. And um, there is no immediate future for them attaining the crown, right? Things, very bad, tragic things would have to take place for, for Harry to ever become king. Um, and, and that doesn't, like, goodness gracious, we hope that doesn't happen. So in order to protect their privacy, um, or they would say privacy, um, and that of their child, they have chosen to go a different route. Um, Megan was a very successful actress, probably was making a decent living doing that before she dated Harry. Harry has proven again and again that there is worth in who he is just by birthright. Um, so they're saying we can do this on our own. And I don't blame them. I don't. However, I, I don't blame them either. <laughs> what I think, it, and I said this earlier to Jasmine, I, what I think it has done is shown us, at least those of us here stateside, mm-hmm. how little we understand about the dynamics of the yes. royal family. Yes, because who in their right mind hasn't heard, you know, if you were born into a family business, any family business, you might not grow up and want to, uh, you know, let's say it's bathroom tile. You might not want to be a bathroom tile person or run that business. You might want to go and do your own thing. That happens 
all the time. It just happens to be something that many people have dreamt of being a part of this family or have thought how lovely it would be. And now for them to go, yeah, not so much. That's where a lot of people question it. The reason this has become a huge hubbub is the way it was done. I mean, Instagram, for goodness sake, not very royal family. Not very royal family, but I think that's kind of the whole point. That right? um, it's like, you know, I mean, I, I don't know that I would have gone the Instagram route, but... You know, I, I certainly wouldn't have waited for the palace to announce it for me, which is like the custom of putting the sign outside the gate and all that. Like, that's the palace way. I think it was probably important for Meghan and Harry to like, we're going to announce this our own way. Instagram, yeah. probably not the way I would have gone, but Instagram was available and that's what they took. Here we are. Right. I disagree. Given the gravity of what they announced, I would have let it hit with as little um, bounce <laughs> as I could have. And it coming from the queen, it, it being either um, an approval from her or a, hey, I'm super proud of them for, you know, doing this, that would have been so much less um, kind of scandalous. And what's interesting about it is they're so upset with the grief that the two of them, and specifically Megan, has received from the press. And then to do it this way, it only, you know, far more fuel on the fire. Well, that's certainly been the case. I mean, I was thinking of her, you know, that interview that she gave where she's, you know, standing there with this look on her face. The whole time I'm going, she's about to cry. She's about to cry. She's about to cry. I, and I get it, right? She was under so much scrutiny. I get mm-hmm. it. I totally get that. I hear what you're saying. I eh, I know. I, it would have been nice to... But then people being people, because haters going to hate, if the, sure. if the queen would have announced it, wouldn't that have just opened them to different speculation of like, oh, they must have been ousted or, uh, you know, the queen... Mm, I don't know. Maybe. But the old school, you know those who served at the pleasure of the queen would have been shut up because yeah, the press would have just gone, well, that's the way they're going to do it. And, and it had long been discussed that they were potentially going to move to Africa and do a lot of their charity work there where, where they can have a huge impact. Um, So this was not, unchartered conversation um and so for them to have just come out right and been like oh bt dubs we're gonna (laughs) we'll be you remember remember that part of the country that left us and we were like okay with it and then it turned into a weird thing yeah we're gonna be there that's that's where it got crazy um and it and really truthfully it came across as very american to just be like we're out definitely there yeah i agree yeah and i don't think that that, you know, made them any fans in England. No, not in England. I think it might have no. made them fans here. Um, probably. but and, and I get why people are defending their right to do it. I totally get their right to do it. I just feel, especially given her age, the fact that they're not going to have her very long, on top of his cousins getting married soon, her oh, the father. Age, I was like, "What? Megan's dying? What? No. Oh, the Queen's age? <laughs> the Queen's age. I'm sorry. I'm all about being respectful to the Queen. Um, so, given the Queen's age, they're not going to have her. He, he, he's very, very close with his grandfather. Also, not going to be around very long. Um, his father will be 
relatively shortly king, let's assume within 10 years. Um, that's a very safe bet because she's 93. Um, and so his father's going to be king. His uncle is in a whole heap of trouble. My favorite, my favorite, which is Prince Andrew and the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing. Um, my favorite quote on that was out on his ascot. The queen kicked him <laughs> out of his duties. Yeah. So that was a headline, I think, in the Daily Mail. Um, but it, to me, it just seemed like I think there was so much angst for them. They were like, let's just announce it and be done. And, of course, I'm speculating. But I would have maybe timed it a little bit differently. Waited out till. uh until the Andrew stuff comes down, the wedding is over because she deserves, she's already, you know, this wedding is like very tumultuous with her father being, um, it, yeah, being under scrutiny, yeah, to put it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And has, so, the, has like the, the former fiance part resolved of that wedding? The former fiance of? Of, um, I can't remember the guy's name, the Italian guy. Oh, yeah, that is so far below the fold, as we say in journalism, <laughs> like, like that you and I don't even know the names correctly at this point. Yeah, that that's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're like, oh, that? No, we're fine. It's no big deal. Um, yeah, it's it's a little, I, and it's definitely not wagging the dog, right? This Andrew thing is on its own, and Harry's on his own. Um, yeah. So but there's no. that, yeah. I mean, yeah, the other fiance thinks no big whoop. I know, obviously not because we can't even remember the guy's name. But there was yeah. at the time all this speculation like, oh, he's just the gold digger. He's after Beatrice for her money and her power yeah. and whatever. Yeah. And, you know, there was that speculation. Yeah. Yeah, it's over. I mean, those are ha care. hashtag royal people problems. Well, ex <laughs> that's exactly it. I mean, this is, you know, where um, Archie will be raised, how he will be raised. Um, you know, is this kid going to public school? Probably not. But these are things that were, you know, all of that, that is floating to the top of the British scandal. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see just kind of like the longer term effects of this. Lots of good stuff. Well, Hannah Stanley, always a pleasure talking with you. Oh, my goodness. I'm, it's a pleasure. Whenever you or Jasmine ring, I am there for you guys. Thank you so much. Where can people find Gabby Road and support your podcast empire? Oh, that would be so lovely. Uh, it would be Gabby Road on uh, Facebook. So it's Gabby Road Radio on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And then podcasts at Gabby Road with Hannah, Fred, and Justin. Marvelous. All right. Well, thanks so much, Hannah Stanley. Talk to you soon. Thanks, love. Bye. Bye. Fascinating stuff. It's like a, it's become like the national soap opera. I'm telling you, it's a thing. Anyway, uh, all right. It is time for us to turn things over. So the news is next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom.